0: Hello, and welcome to Know That Really Happened. I'm your host, Joey estava and definitely not an android recreation of her. I mean, me. Don't worry about it. Today's episode is going to be about medical stories from history that are just too wild to believe, but unfortunately, they are true. That being said, a couple of these stories are pretty gross, so if you're squeamish, be prepared. I warned you. We've got my good friend Emily back on the show today, and the benefit of having a friend who can come on your podcast a lot is that you have a friend who can come on your podcast a lot, but the beginning of this episode, I think, is a beautiful testament to what happens if two best friends wait too long to catch up with each other and then try to record a podcast. It starts out a little chaotic, but we'll get there.
1: It's like (laughs) when all the kids in my third grade class were trying to tell me... That you pronounce hermione her my own in harry potter and i was like excuse me i watched doug's first movie there is a sea monster named hermione in it i know how to pronounce it don't play with the
0: old magic to me
1: (laughs) (laughs) kids really
0: get on a kick with a pronunciation they're like determined that that's what it is and i i remember vividly from like preschool to kindergarten that Among the kids that I knew, the girl's private part was called a pachina. P-A-C-H-I-N-A. Pachina. (laughs) Pachina. Convinced. (laughs) This podcast has gone off the rails. Oh, my God. Okay, anyway, so we're here to talk about history. We're here to info dump. We're here with Emily Ann Scott, who I have tried to introduce several times already, but I have failed miserably at both saying the correct name and saying anything normal. So (laughs) hopefully this will be the take that does it. How are you doing, Emily? I love you, and I'm so glad that
1: you're here. (laughs) I love you. I'm so glad to be here, too. (laughs) I'm having a great time.
0: (laughs) I'm just going to jump right into it. We're going to do an episode that I haven't
1: titled yet, but it's going to be about medical stories. I'm so excited because for a very long period of my adolescence, my favorite television show was House. So you're going to have so much to say. I'll start my first one with a question. Have you ever had to get
0: CPR certified or like learn how to do CPR on one of the dummies?
1: Yeah, I, I used to teach preschool. So we had to keep very up to date certifications for CPR and first aid and stuff.
0: Cool. So um, depending on the brand of CPR dummy you used, do you happen to remember if it was called a Ann or recessy Annie? I don't think so. I don't know if it was named. That's so funny. I kind of wish it was. Depending on the brand of CPR dummy you were using, if you were using recessy Annie, you may have been performing CPR on the death mask of a drowned
1: girl from the 1880s. Oh, God. Why do I feel like this whole episode is going to give me anxiety? <laughs> Just tonight when I'm trying to go to
0: sleep, I'm going to be thinking about that. I'm now scrolling through my outline like, am I going to scare Emily more? I think I am. This can't be anywhere near as scary as the people who wouldn't die episode. Hopefully. I don't know. I don't know what your threshold is. Let me know. <laughs> Recessi Annie or Recessi Ann was designed by toy maker Asmund Lairdahl and the Austrian-Czech physician Peter Safar and American physician James Elam. The evolution of Rostasi Annie from the EMS Museum claims that Asmund Lairdell chose to use a woman's face on the mannequin as he thought male trainees might be reluctant to kiss a man's face. Patriarchy
1: does it once again, man. (laughs) I could not believe that I read that sentence with my own face. Simultaneously, I can't believe it, and also... It makes the most sense of anything that I've ever heard in my life. So rather than use a male or kind of like genderless face, he chose the face
0: of, in America, it's referred to as la belle italienne. But everywhere else in the world, it's I think it's l'éconnu de la Seine. I am really bad at French. It's the unknown face of the Seine River. Mm-hmm. So what he chose was that face, which there are two or three accounts as to where that face came from.
1: I can pull up that Wikipedia photo, though, to show you so you can see what it looks like. Okay. Oh, God. That, you know, that really does look like that person, like like the the CPR person. Oh, my mm-hmm.
0: God.
1: That's so, that's so
0: sick. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so there's two or three different accounts of where the face could have possibly come from. The kind of most accepted account is that the body of a young woman was pulled out of the River Seine at in Paris around the late 1880s. And since the body showed no signs of violence, suicide was suspected. This citation says a pathologist at the Paris Morgue was, according to the story, so taken by her beauty that he felt compelled to make a wax plaster cast death mask of her face. It has been questioned whether the expression of the face could belong to a drowned person. So it's, you know, shaky. We we really don't know where it came from, but like, that's sort of the most accepted story. And Uh kind of the most accepted age
1: of this person is 16. Oh, God. There's, so, it's so messed up. Because, <laughs> like, first of all, why are you making a, a a mask of anybody's face without any permission from anyone? Also, like, a sixteen-year-old or younger, who knows? Why are you, as an adult person, looking at this child and being like, "She's so beautiful. I need to keep her face with me forever, even though yeah. she's dead." There's just so much wrong with it. Uh... And then when
0: we connect it to how the designer of Rossetti Annie chose this face because he didn't think the men would want to kiss a man.
1: Oh, my God.
0: It actually became an extremely popular art piece. Um, in the years following the his creation of it, a bunch of copies were produced and the copies quickly became fashionable. It was morbid, but people at that time were super morbid. They were like carrying around lockets of hair from dead people and like Ooh. carrying around their teeth and shit people were really obsessed with death at this point in time. So it makes sense for the period, but
1: she was trying to like escape shit. Probably if, if, if the suicide theory is correct, then like she did that for a reason because life was painful for her. And then we capitalized on the pain of her life by making her a fashion statement and a tool. And Oh, I hate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was a trend for a period of time to, like, have her face in your home if you were an artist in, in Paris Bohemian Society. Albert Camus and others compared mm-hmm. her enigmatic smile to that of Mona Lisa. It's as evoking much speculation as to what clues the seemingly happy expression perceived as eerily serene on her face could offer about her life, her death, and her place in society. Critic Al Alvarez wrote in his book on suicide, The Savage God, I am told that a whole generation of German girls modeled their looks on her. He thinks that German actresses such as Elizabeth Bergner modeled themselves on her.
1: There's so many layers to this. This is so this young girl has been like fetishized by these men who are using her image and then that is filtered down through to young girls being like, "Well, what is it that men find attractive and find beautiful?" And they look to these things, what are the images that are being praised by men and held up by men and used by men? That's the image that they have in their head as to what is attractive to men. And then they use that to model themselves after so that they'll be attractive to men. So like, uh, it's just, uh. it's reminding me a little bit, obviously it's different, but it reminds me of Marilyn Monroe and how people use her image now after her death in ways that are so abhorrent <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and like make her a symbol instead of a person. I feel like I'm not being very funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's not because
0: it's not funny. It's like alarming. And yeah, it is. the good news is that there are other brands of CPR dummies, oh, but recessie and recessie Annie is, is based off of this face. The other options for where her face possibly came from, It could have been that the impression was taken from the face of a... Well, these are all gross. They're all gross. None of them are really any better. So the impression could have been taken from the face of a young model who had died of tuberculosis around 1875, but no trace of the original cast remained. According to other accounts, the mask was taken from the daughter of a mask manufacturer in Germany. The identity of the girl was never discovered, and it says they estimated the age of the model at no more than 16, given the firmness of the skin.
1: Ew, none of it is good. None of it is good. And here's
0: a little piece of information that we can wrap this up with that might make you feel a little bit more, not better, but maybe a little bit more sparkly. So, the chorus refrain, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay? You okay, Annie? Is about practicing resuscitation on this dummy.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, that makes up for it. We're fine now.
0: Because when they trained people on this dummy, you have to ask them, are you
1: okay? Yeah, and the name was that, Annie. That's true. You, you do have to, like, you only pass if you actually ask them because that's the first step that you're supposed to do is find out if they can speak for themselves. That's so funny. Yeah. How many men who needed to be resuscitated do you think have died because other men around them were not willing to perform CPR on them? The number would be
0: startle anyone but also not be startling at all yeah yeah that's why homophobia is wrong everyone because you could literally die because your homie doesn't want to give you cpr fuck off with that don't be gay save lives (laughs) so how do you feel after that story are you ready to move on to the next one which will probably also gross you out but hopefully not in the same
1: way yeah i was like i feel gross but not in the way i expected to feel in terms of a, a medical story I feel like any other type of grossness is going to feel better than this type of grossness. I hope you're right. And I'm just going (laughs) to, we're just going to have to find out. I'm sure I will also find a way to make this about patriarchy and heteronormativity (laughs) and the hegemony of white, straight, male supremacy. And we wouldn't have you any other way. Uh, I had a joke with some of our friends in college that I could work the term heteronormativity into every essay that I wrote for every Christmas, <laughs> <laughs> So that was always my goal.
0: <laughs> I'm so proud to know you. <laughs> anyway, so I'm actually gonna start this one with a question as well. What's the weirdest or like grossest home remedy you've tried or heard of for when somebody is
1: sick or? Oh, I feel like my tolerance for consuming gross things is pretty low. So I haven't tried that many. But I do know that when I (laughs) when I had COVID and I was worried that I was starting to lose my smell. I I was like kind of on the edge and going in and out and I couldn't tell. My friend told me that her doctor said that they should do smell training. She was like, just like find something that smells a certain way and smell it and think about how it smells. So I had like a little box with me at all times, the whole time that I had COVID with a bottle of nail polish. (laughs) a sharpie (laughs) like the strongest smelling bullshit I could think of and I was probably also high on fumes while I was like (laughs) sick with COVID but all day long I would be like opening the bottle of nail polish and like smelling it and trying to think about what it smelled like. (laughs) I did not expect this at all. (laughs) It worked pretty well to be fair. I, I feel like I never fully lost the smell I don't know if that's why I did it, but I don't know why you, okay, I need, so
0: why, I need to know why you picked those items when there are other really strong
1: smelling things <laughs> that wouldn't, I feel like you just wanted to get high. I feel like you are lying. I also had a candle, but I was like, the candle isn't as strong as, um. But I mean, like, <laughs> vinegar. That's true, I could have done that. Or, <laughs> a burnt piece of toast. I there are so many things you could have had in that box. Why did my brain immediately go to nail polish and Sharpies? I don't know. I don't know. But I will say, when you can't smell something, it is very hard to think about how it smells. She said it was something about connecting, like, you know, the neurological experience of smell to the physical experience. So if you were sick and your nose was stuffed up and you were trying to think about, like, what a Sharpie smells like, it's a very weird feeling.
0: That's incredible. You're so much more adventurous than I thought you were. I didn't mean to. (laughs) How fucked up would you have to be to consider eating a human covered
1: in honey? I'm so, wait. I, 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 I I think unless I was stranded in the wilderness yellow jacket style and I had some honey, then I would do it. (laughs) Otherwise, I don't see that journey for me. Yeah, no, I honestly I agree. I can't. It's
0: it might sound weird, but I agree. I am on the same thing.
1: We are but... anti cannibalism on this podcast. I know it's a it's a controversial stance, but we're willing to take it.
0: We are uh, pro women and anti anti men.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's valid. Yeah,
0: sure. Someone will be mad about that. Um, <laughs> So, ancient people seem to be down with it to some degree. Okay. In a practice we know now as mellified men. Mellified is an an older term for something that has been preserved in honey. Mm. A mellified man was essentially a person who had been mummified in honey. But what makes this practice really mind-blowing for me is that this practice would begin before death. Oh, God. Old people near the end of their lives would submit themselves to this process. They'd be like 70 or 80 years old. It was like the original donating your body to science. Yeah. They would switch to an all honey all the time diet. Literally nothing else. Not even water. Oh. Eventually you would start literally sweating and pooping just like honey. Oh God. Can you imagine? And the diet itself would kill you, obviously. uh uh-huh. hmm then they would put you in a stone coffin filled with honey and it would stay closed for up to a century. And when the coffin was reopened, the person would have turned into sort of this like goop fully sort of disintegrated
1: into the honey. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt, but why am I thinking of sploosh from holes? Like the disintegrated peaches, you know, the canned peaches. No, that's
0: disgusting.
1: Yeah. That's probably a hundred percent what this was like. They
0: would use that as medicine then. This Uh, mellified man confection would be sold at markets for the treatment of wounds and bone fractures. So it was like, if you broke a bone, they were like, oh, you need to eat some human. It could be consumed orally or
1: used externally. But that was a little less gross to me because at least they like decided to do it. They're like, I'm getting old. It's time for me to start eating exclusively honey until I die. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to go out. A very Winnie the Pooh- coded away to go out.
0: <laughs> so some of the earliest known records of mellified corpses came from Greek historian Herodotus in the fourth century BCE, who recorded that the Assyrians used to embalm their dead with honey. That's not necessarily the same as the whole process of being mellified from the inside out, but mm-hmm. people have been embalming their dead with honey for a very long time. A century later, Alexander the Great was reportedly preserved in a honey-filled sarcophagus. There's this great quote from a Chinese text called Talks While the Plow is Resting by a Yuan Dynasty scholar. In the land of the Arabs, there are men 70 or 80 years old who are willing to give their bodies to save others. Such a one takes no more food or drink, only bathing and eating a little honey. Till after a month, his excreta are nothing but honey, then death ensues. His compatriots place the body to macerate in a stone coffin full of honey with an inscription giving the year and month of burial. After a hundred years, the seals are removed and the confection so formed used for the treatment of wounds and fractures of the body and limbs. Only a small amount taken internally is needed for the cure. Although it is scarce in those parts, the common people call it mellified man. Mr. Tao, I myself do not know whether whether the tale is true or not. In any case, I append it for the consideration of the learned.
1: He's like, I don't know anything about this. I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying we should do anything like this. I think it's kind of weird, but, you know, you do with that what, yeah. you, what you will. <laughs> I'm imagining, like, have you ever been on, like, a winery tour? Yeah. You know how they have all those barrels with the date on it so that it can age? Ew! That's
0: horrifying.
1: I don't like this story. It's also giving, like, a midsummer.
0: Ew, like, yeah,
1: you know, like the old people like sacrificing themselves. Uh, yeah, let's move on. I don't like this one. How are you feeling? <laughs> um, not hungry anymore. <laughs> I feel like the subtitle of this episode is, mm, All right, don't like that.
0: <laughs> Here's the thing, though, listeners if I have to know it, so do you. <laughs> I draw you in with the funny stories about Rasputin, and then I come in for the kill with the stories that keep me up at night. Yeah, enjoy those night terrors, everyone. So the next one is actually one that you told me about a while ago. This is the story of the Dancing Plague of 1518. You knew! You knew! So this plague took place in 1518 in Strasbourg, which at the time was in the Holy Roman Empire, which is now this uh, particular city is in France. And it was a period of time where hundreds, hundreds of citizens of Strasbourg danced uncontrollably and apparently unwillingly for days on end to the point where a number of people died from exhaustion. This plague lasted almost two months. Here's what happened. We're not 100% certain who the woman was who started it, but their reports are certain that there was a woman who started it who went out into the street and started dancing. Many accounts point to a woman called Frau Trofea, She went out into the street and started dancing until she collapsed from exhaustion. But once she recovered, she started dancing again, uncontrollably, seemingly. And somehow by the end of the week, there were nearly 30 people out there with her.
1: Has anyone done the historical research on whether or not ABBA was just playing and they just had to dance? That's the only explanation I can think of. It's like, was Whitney Houston on? Is Whitney Houston to blame for this? Was someone just really good at the
0: lyre nearby? <laughs> yeah, I want to know what the music was cuz maybe that was the problem. I don't know if there was any music. It says that city authorities were alarmed by the ever-increasing number of dancers. So city officials obviously noticed that there's 30 people who have been uncontrollably dancing in the street, repeatedly passing out and not stopping and have like a panicked look on their face.
1: All week <laughs> these people are not having a good time. It sounds like a nightmare, but it also sounds hilarious to watch. <laughs>
0: So obviously religious leaders met with civic leaders to try to figure out what what's going on here. And not only was Strasbourg pretty superstitious, you know, medieval times. So people didn't know anything is essentially the explanation. They were just trying to figure out what to do to make it stop. So they decided that clearly these people just need to get it out of their system. So So they <laughs> held a dance off. Dead ass. They theorized that more dancing was the solution to get it out of their system. So they arranged for the guild halls to have the dancers go in, and they arranged for musicians to accompany the dancing. So up until this point, there hadn't been musicians. They had just been panicked and dancing in the street to no music for an entire week. They got musicians to accompany the dancing and professional dancers to help the afflicted to continue dancing.
1: Wait, that one's that part is so funny. <laughs> Great energy. Let's just channel it into like a more structured movement. Let's. I feel like if you really applied yourself, you could do a waltz. Just, here's a coach. You know, I get that you're having a hard time, but like we've come up with something that we think is really gonna help you guys. It's called the Macarena.
0: <laughs> oh my God, that was it. That was the joke. That was the one. <laughs> At the beginning of this, there were only like 30, 30 to 50 people out on the street dancing um, that they corralled into a guild hall to dance more to like get it out of their system. But instead of getting it out of their system, it exacerbated the contagion, which I think is a hilarious way to phrase that. We're not really sure how many people were involved. There's, of course, the chance that there's a lot of like hyperbole about this because uh, people were so superstitious and didn't know anything, were so religious. People thought that it was because their blood was overheated or because they were possessed by a demon or the local saint was the saint of convulsions and like epilepsy or whatever. So they were like, oh, these people are being punished by the saint with constant convulsions to dance or whatever. Reports say that anywhere between 300 to 500 people were eventually consumed by the compulsion. Mm. 300 to 500 people. So it went from 30 and the church goes, here, we'll give you music and professional dancers to help
1: you stop question mark they accidentally turned the town into a huge banger and you know what this actually does explain why 500 years later that same town became the town in footloose i guess i just like do you have a theory about what you think happened with that yeah
0: by the end of september the plague just sort of dissipated as mysteriously as it it began nothing really caused it to stop modern theories the one that i think is most likely because as a person in modern times where it feels like we live in a hellscape i totally understand how it could have been stress induced mass hysteria mm. as i was reading through these materials to me it feels like this could have been the dissociative doom scrolling of their day people were so overwhelmed by the horrific condition that they lived in because this area not only you know medieval times were fucking rough, but this particular area was riddled with starvation and disease and things were especially rough for people in this region at this time, even by the standards of regular medieval peasants. I can 100% imagine that a group of people would be so overwhelmed by their circumstances and their inability to get out of their circumstances that they do something like starting to dance in the street and then have kind of a panic moment where they're like, oh, if I stop dancing, that means I have to go back to work. Mm. or i have to go back to my house where there's no food or i have to go back to like my kids who are all dying of the plague Mm um psychologically you could get stuck out there like that and a bunch of people come join you and it like adds validity to your delusion that you're creating for everyone i
1: feel like Mm -hmm. the idea that you're you're this like person who doesn't have any control over what's happening to you And you're being pulled in all these different ways and oppressed in these different ways. And you're trying to grow up and grow into an adult who has control and how all of that can, could manifest. There's a lot of factors that I could see going into something like that. Absolutely. Trying to
0: fulfill some kind of psychological need that there's literally no way to fulfill because of the circumstances
1: that you're in. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even a conscious choice to like do something like that. Yeah, totally. So that's that's why I think that this is
0: what happened. A lot of modern speculation about the event uh, agrees with that as well. There's also the, the chance that it could have been kind of like a mass accidental food poisoning situation because the mm-hmm. area was doing so poorly agriculturally. There was like a, a fungi situation going on with some of the crops and that were found at the time maybe they all got some kind of something some kind of brain yeah. something from it who knows yeah but <laughs> seven other cases of dancing plague were reported in the same region during the medieval area yeah. so yeah. <laughs> these people had it really rough and the oh, only
1: way yeah. they had to escape was to pretend to be overcome by dancing Hmm. That is so funny. What my my prevailing question is: What kind of dancing was being done in fifteen hundreds France, right? Or like wherever it was, because you think of dancing during like a medieval time as a very structured thing. Yeah. <laughs> so like I'm trying to I'm trying to picture what it would even look like, or if it was like. <laughs>
0: people doing like a wagon wheel or something but just looking absolutely exhausted and
1: horrified dragging their feet because they've been dancing for three days and sweating and not eating i mean besides the like dying part it sounds like a good time it sounds like (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) like coachella plus you know a a death yeah so that's the end of what i got about that how do you feel i was like visually watching it i would be horrified But just hearing about it, it's just like kind of, it just just sounds like a good time. Like I said, besides all the death. (laughs) Thinking about it, I'm just like, you know what? I get it. I would do it.
0: Great. I'm glad you're still with me. Yeah. (laughs) So let's move on to my last story, which is definitely my favorite one. This story is about Dr. Robert Liston, who is known as the fastest knife in the West End.
1: Okay trying to conceptualize what that means like an express lunch hour rhinoplasty or something so he
0: was born in 1794 so this was a long 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 time ago he was renowned for being an incredibly fast surgeon which i didn't understand why that mattered until i read about this because there were no anesthetics at this time yet so Oh, yeah. Right. So speed that. was like the most important thing in surgery because the longer the surgery takes, the more blood the patient is losing, the more pain they're in and the more likely they'll go into shock or die. So being a fast surgeon was a good thing um, to the point where at this time, strapping or holding patients down for surgery was super normal because without anesthetic, patients would freak the fuck out and
1: beat nurses off of them and escape. I mean, frankly, I would. That sounds like One of my biggest fears is being in like waking anesthesia. Yeah, That sounds like the worst nightmare possible. You're not just looking at it and not feeling anything. You're also feeling it. What a nightmare. (laughs) The speed of a
0: surgeon was, it could be life or death for a patient. So he was in incredibly high demand. Resources that I read said that Patients would literally camp in his waiting room for days to be seen by him because they wanted to be seen by him. Mm. These are people who needed surgery. He lost one out of ten patients, which sounds like a lot, but average surgeons at the other hospital in town at the time lost one out of four patients. Mm. Yeah. So one out of ten is a huge improvement. (laughs) So he was really well-renowned. This is from an article in The Atlantic that they wrote about Dr. Liston. Imagine this scene because he was extremely fast. Imagine lying on a table in an old school operating room. Faces stare down at you from the viewing galleries above and your leg throbs with pain from a broken bone. Infection is just starting to set in. The door opens and three men in blood stiffened aprons walk in, parting a collection of knives and saws. Two of them grab your shoulders and arms and pin you to the table. The third picks out one of the knives from the cart. Time me, gentlemen, he calls out to the gathered spectators. Time me. Damn. The man grabs your leg and begins to cut just below the knee. He continues to hold onto your leg as one of his lackeys get a tourniquet around it. To free his cutting hand, he clasps the bloody knife in his teeth and picks up a saw. He (laughs) cuts back and forth through the bone drops the severed leg into a bucket full of sawdust and sews you up to the applause of men sitting in the wings. As promised, they've timed the whole procedure. From first incision to clipping the loose threads on the sutures at just two and a half minutes.
1: Oh my God. That's, I mean, I don't know how long like a normal like amputation takes, but that does seem impressive. The
0: Alberta Canada Health website says that above the knee leg amputation can take about 45 to 90 minutes Mm, god so two and a half
1: minutes yeah that's also like with the distraction or i guess like i don't know that i would call it a distraction of like the patient being awake and being able to feel everything really but it is a hindrance i imagine for somebody who's performing an amputation
0: a hindrance to say the least I'm going to tell a couple of stories, impressive stories about him first and then finish up with the story that made me want to talk about him. So the first surgery he did that was that became really famous was the first surgery with anesthesia. It was the first time they'd started using ether. American dentists and doctors had recently demonstrated you could use it as a surgical anesthetic, so he did a public surgery that people could come watch in 1846. He had a patient named Frederick Churchill whose right knee had been having problems for Years and years and no treatments have been working so the only option was amputation. The quote says, "The day of the surgery, Liston walked into the operating room and instead of grabbing a knife and asking his audience to time him, he pulled out a jar. He said, 'We are going to try a Yankee dodge today, gentlemen.' His colleague administered the anesthesia to Mr. Churchill by holding a rubber tube to his mouth so he could inhale the ether, mm-hmm. and after a few minutes he was out." They put a handkerchief with more of it over his face to keep him that way, like (laughs) chloroform style, basically. And then Listen began the amputation. 25 seconds later, the amputation was done.
1: 25 seconds? 25 seconds later. That feels so fake. And then they just have to wait for this guy to wake up. Yep.
0: So he woke up a few minutes later and reportedly asked when the operation was going to start. To the amusement of the audience, obviously, because. It was over he didn't have a leg anymore (laughs) yeah so he did the first public operation with anesthesia for an amputation which is crazy and did it in
1: fucking 25 seconds that's insane wait what was the jar for the just the 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 ether ether. okay for some reason in my head i was like i thought he was gonna take bets on how fast he could do it (laughs) He's like the kind of thing this guy might do. Just getting
0: extra, extra confident. He knew he yeah. was going to be able to do this one in 25 seconds. So he was like, place
1: your bets, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, literally. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I get it. But also wait until I'm out to take the bets, I think. Yeah, <laughs> like, I am a human being. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I would even mind that much if you took bets as long as I wasn't there to see it. Right. <laughs> so... He did that,
0: which is very impressive and wonderful Mm -hmm. and a great thing for science. But then he also did things like his speed was usually a really great thing, but it meant that sometimes he made mistakes, including once he accidentally took off someone's testicles while amputating their leg.
1: (gasps) Their full testicles. How do you make that mistake? I mean, that seems like that seems like extra work for you. (laughs) (laughs) I have the exact same question. I don't. Why? Like, when you're trying to get your chores done before your mom gets home, (laughs) and then she gets home, and you think you did such a great job, and she's like, what is this? You, like, emptied the litter box under
0: your rug or something. (laughs) This is clean, right? You can't see it. Yep. So that's one. But here is the story that made me want to talk about him, because... This is probably the surgery that he's the most famous for, which is, you know, he could have been famous for being the guy that used anesthesia for the first time on an amputation. But instead, he's known for being the guy that had a surgery with a
1: 300% mortality rate. What? (laughs) I'm suddenly so concerned for everyone else in that room. (laughs) As you should be. Who do you think died because of this surgery? okay i feel like it has to be the patient i feel like he probably got done with the thing and then like threw it because he was like trying to be fast and it like got somebody in the neck or something you're on the right track for sure the patient for sure died okay it was a one in ten chance so that makes sense
0: yeah it, it was gonna happen to somebody One of his young nurses whose finger he accidentally cut off during the surgery. Just because she was holding something in place? (laughs) Yep. Jesus Christ. They died of sepsis afterward because he cut their finger off during the surgery. And then the third person who died
1: was someone in the audience. I'm picturing like the severed finger flying into the stands and getting caught in someone's throat. And then like... (laughs) That's not what happened, but it's in the same arena of what happened. So someone in the audience who was,
0: I guess, kind of close by, their sleeve got slashed by Liston as he moved. They were so frightened by having almost been stabbed that they died of shock. Oh
1: my God. <laughs> what the hell, man? <laughs> this is what happens. This is what our teachers were talking about when they said, don't rush your work. There's a point of diminishing returns on speed when it comes to surgery. I think we're discovering yeah. <laughs>
0: So, he could have been well-known for being a really amazing fast surgeon, but instead we know him as the dude who killed three people during a surgery and removed someone's testicles on accident. How do you feel? I feel sorry for those people. I mean, I feel sorry for all of them, but I feel really sorry for his assistant because they were just doing their fucking job. Yeah, yeah.
1: If your boss accidentally killed you at your next meeting, you'd be like, what the fuck, man? This is not (laughs) the way I wanted to go out.
0: So yeah, that's the story of the career of Dr. Robert Liston. That's all I've got for you. So what have you been rabbit-holing about recently, Emily?
1: Well, I feel like for this podcast, I'm just like the John Green whisperer, because I feel like most of my fun facts come from John Green. And I remembered this story from the Anthropocene Reviewed, which he wrote. One of the essays in Anthropocene Reviewed is about Staphylococcus aureus, the staph infection. And I found out some pretty fun information about how penicillin came to be. There was a very old surgeon who had discovered Staphylococcus decades earlier named Ogston Alexander Ogston, And he developed an antiseptic spray that he was very serious about teaching his students, you have to use this, right? And they were like, what the fuck? Like, they were basically the way that some people are about COVID masks whatever why are you being so like serious about this like it doesn't work like whatever they even like made up this mocking song about it what (laughs) and we learned the thing of the future was using unlimited spray the spray the spray the antiseptic spray a.o would shower it morning night and day for every sort of scratch where others would attach a sticking plaster patch he gave the spray
0: (laughs) students of your really went to extreme lengths with the songs that they wrote about shit like to make fun of shit that's
1: so true the idea of these kids clowning their professor for being obsessed with a life-saving world-changing medical advancement is so funny to me it's so 2020
0: it's nice to see that humans never change
1: yes yeah. <laughs> there you go so basically this oxen guy who developed this spray he also discovered staph and he set up this lab to, with a bunch of things of staff to try to figure out what was going to work and help cure it. So he and other people are working on it, including this guy, uh, this scientist called Alexander Fleming, who is the guy who accidentally discovered penicillin. He's dealing with his cultures of staff and everything. And it says, one Monday morning in 1928, Fleming noticed that one of his cultures of Staphylococcus aureus, had been contaminated by a fungus, penicillium, which seemed to have killed all the staph bacteria. He remarked aloud, that's funny. (laughs) I don't know why we know that, but that's hilarious. It accidentally developed this mold and then it killed all the staph. So he's like, okay. So he, he developed what he called mold juice to treat some patients and it started working. And so they were like, okay, there's something to this penicillium mold that we need to figure out. But the thing that is the most interesting to me about this is that the penicillin that we have now is all descended from essentially one sample. So like, it wasn't even like that sample that he originally, that he originally found. There was a dramatic improvement, but they just didn't have enough of it. I guess they just scraped the mold out of whatever they had and it just didn't keep growing they were trying to find more productive strains of this mold to try to develop this cure and eventually this woman named mary hunt who was a bacteriologist was at a grocery store in peoria illinois she was shopping in the produce section and she's looking at this cantaloupe and she sees that there's some mold on it and she's like you know what i think that's like penicillium so she buys the cantaloupe and takes it back to the lab They exposed it to ultraviolet radiation and x-rays, and it started being really productive. So like all the penicillin that we have now stems from this small mold sample on a cantaloupe in Illinois in a grocery store that Mary Hunt picked up on her weekly shopping trip. Holy (laughs) cow. Which is so insane on its own. And then the other part of it is that I'll just read John Green's footnote here. It says, that's not the astonishing thing about the story, though. The astonishing thing is that after scraping off the mold that became the world's penicillin supply, the researchers ate the cantaloupe.
0: I love, I'm obsessed with the fact that we know that. (laughs) I love that somebody
1: made sure to record
0: and we ate the cantaloupe.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that was in the early 1940s that that happened. The penicillin that we have now is still kind of from this 1940s cantaloupe, which is insane. I can't help but being a woo-woo bitch about it and being like, what a gift from the universe. Because both of
0: the times that they saw penicillium were random. They don't know why. It was literally just, where did this mold come from in the lab? And then a cantaloupe in a grocery store. Yeah. From nothing.
1: Yeah, and the idea that this woman, this scientist, even had the wherewithal to look at it and be like, hang on. She could have totally just been like, ew, and put the cantaloupe back. Right, right.
0: That was a high-quality story. Thank you for bringing that my John Green filter.
1: Yes, (laughs) (laughs) it's the book The Anthropocene Reviewed. It's a very good book, and it's very wide-ranging topics, which is why I can apply it to almost anything we cover on this podcast. That was amazing. This was kick-ass. I'm glad we got to do this again. Me too.
0: And I'm glad that I didn't fully gross you out. And that's our show. Hopefully you listeners weren't too grossed out by these stories either. Thank you to Alexi Chistelin from Lux and Music. And make sure to subscribe so you know when the next episode drops. I'm so erratic. You'll never know unless you have that thing turned on. See you next time. Bzz, bzz.